Hello, and welcome to Entertainment Weekly's Best of Shows, the podcast where we talk about the best of television and the rest of television. I'm Darren Franich, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly, and I'm joined by my brilliant colleague and fellow TV critic, Kristen Baldwin. Kristen, how's it going this week? It's going pretty well. How about you? Oh, great. Thank you for asking. Uh, I'm very excited. Later on in the show, I'll be talking to Noelle Stevenson, the showrunner of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, the delightful animated series returning to Netflix this week. That's exciting. Uh, but, but Kristen, first, let's talk about something that is unfortunately a little bit less exciting, mm. uh, but certainly something that is full of uh, important topics that we can tackle. Uh, the new TV series, The Red Line, is a sociopolitical drama. It's a limited series that will be airing in two-hour segments uh, every Sunday starting April 28th, created by Caitlin Parrish and Erica Weiss. So the big names of the executive producer lineup are Ava DuVernay and Greg Berlanti. Um, this is a show that is one of those definably ripped-from-the-headlines dramas. It begins with the really horrific shooting uh, of a man by a policeman. Uh, the dead man happens to be a doctor who happens to have been black, and this, of course causes a gigantic firestorm in Chicago but the show is very focused on the human effects of uh, a story that is very often like that is that has very much been in the news a lot recently Noah Wiley plays the dead man's husband um, he is struggling with his grief over his husband's death as is his daughter um, and then things take a bit of a melodramatic turn um, his daughter decides that she wants to get in contact with her birth mother. It just so happens that her birth mother is running for alderman in uh, a Chicago district that by virtue of her running for alderman, she is a kind of political figure who is talking a lot about police slayings and police brutality and all of the topics that are directly relating to this family. Um, Kristen, you reviewed The Red Line. Uh, you gave the show a B mm -hmm. in a review that I think really addressed um, a lot of the things that are interesting about this show and a lot of the things that are kind of off about it um giving it a b i think is pretty generous frankly i i i found this show despite its best intentions to be uh, a bit of a snooze but i'd yeah. love to know um what was your kind of journey like in watching this show because i know that you kind of struggled with it um in 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 a lot of ways well you know one thing we should mention is the show airs on cbs which is a very you know not where you would expect a show like this to air. And that did factor into my grade to some degree because, you know, this is an event series on CBS that, you know, is tackling important issues, capital I, capital I. And, you know, it's got an interracial gay couple with their adopted uh, black daughter at the center, like, you know, police brutality, homosexual rights in that community. Like, there are a lot of good you know, issues that are being addressed on a very uh, sort of traditional broadcast network. And that's, you know, that's a good thing. That's great. You know, it's got a big TV star, Noah Wiley as the lead. And, and so, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to say like, okay, your show about police brutality is boring, you know, like, because then you just feel like an asshole. The problem is, though, the show is kind of boring. And um, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is that it's just, it's very... 
it feels like um, they're trying really hard. Like there's so many good intentions. Like the, everybody involved in this clearly had good intentions. Like this is an important story. We're going to tell an important story with a lot of diff different perspectives. You know, the one thing uh, element that we didn't talk about yet is that the cop who uh, does this shooting, uh, he's named Paul Evans and he's played by Noel Fisher, who was great on Castle Rock, by the way. I don't know if you remember him from that show, but he he's sort of like when you see him, you're like, oh, OK, that's a white Irish Catholic cop from Chicago. Yep. And he, you know, the, there's this whole storyline with him, like he doesn't quite remember what happened. You know, he the, he's hopped up on adrenaline. He got this call that there was an armed robbery happening and there was a, you know, a suspect in a hoodie and whatever. And he goes in and he shoots, uh, shoots first, a asks questions later, but he doesn't, you know, he's too sort of traumatized by the whole event himself to really know exactly what happened. And so there's this whole like, oh, where'd the security tape go? There's a whole subplot with that. And so it's trying to ask a lot of big questions, um, you know, like, Paul, is this guy a racist or is he just a good guy who made a bad call? Um, and then there's a whole storyline about Daniel. That's Noah Wiley's character. You know, can he really even understand his daughter's grief, his black daughter's grief, because he has never had to you know, experience living while black? And that's part of why she goes to seek out her birth mother, uh, who is black. And then, you know, there's this whole thing about the homosexual community and how they actually have their own biases internally mm -hmm. and, and how they haven't really examined those. Um, but there's so much going on and they have all these other plot lines sort of happening at once in terms of like, there's a whole storyline about Tia, that's the politician, and her her old school opponent, played by Glenn Turman, who is always great, but he doesn't have a whole lot to do here. Um, and there's all this sort of shenanigans happening there. And then, you know, Daniel has a budding romance with another teacher. And there's so much happening that they can't really get into any of these issues uh, in yeah. any substantive way. And a lot of it just feels like box ticking to me. Like, okay, we, you know, we raise this question, we raise this question. Oh, look, there's our gender queer character who just happens to be gender queer for no reason. But the first thing they say is, well, my parents now have my pronouns, right? Like this one character, their whole existence seems to be like, in 2019, all teens have a genderqueer best friend. Like, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it, it just felt a little like... It's it's really worrisome. It, it, it feels almost like a new, incredibly well-intentioned and meaningful and yet self-defeating form of tokenism in a way. Yes! And, and, and you know, I, I, I want to be clear, like, you know, I... I I use that term not kind of trying to throw a grenade at this show because I, I do think that in every respect, as you said, it is very well intentioned and even, you know, incredibly ambitious. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned that uh, uh, Glenn uh, Turman is in the show playing the kind of uh, alderman who Tia uh, is uh, racing against. And, you know, he was the mayor on The Wire. And I think that yes. his presence here is very much an example of like, you know, th that is a kind of like signal bit of stunt casting and just good casting period that's meant to kind of get you thinking about okay like you know this show is deeply involved in the political world of Chicago mm -hmm. and you know I, I, I think that there's an interesting show in here about the race for aldermen in Chicago
Chicago, which is oddly a really hot, it's really like trending topic now because uh, the the movie last year, Widows, was also partially about an electoral race for aldermen in Chicago. Um, and what I think is happening there is that I think there is this kind of fascination with Chicago as this kind of microcosm of America, yes. this microcosm of so many things that's happening in the country. And the idea of Tia, um, who's played by Emma Yatsi Coronaldi, um, the idea of her as this kind of transformative figure who's going to come in and shake up the old guard, um, you know, that's really incisive, but it's so vaguely defined and is jockeying with so many other things. Um, you know, you kind of mentioned that there's also a thread about um, this idea of the gay community having its own biases and this idea of, you know, we're now in this phase where if you are a, you know, somewhat wealthy gay white man of means, um, you know, you can be oddly conservative in a way, you know, in a way that like, I don't think you would have thought of, you know, gay activist and conservative in right. the same sentence, even as recently as five or six years ago. Um, but I just sort of feel like for me, Kristen, there's a bit of a, there is an odd bit of cynicism underlying this show's attempt at sincerity and sweetness. It just sort of feels like in a very network TV and even very CBS-y way, it seems to want everyone to be like great. And it's like, you know, um, uh, it's not just that this family is kind of reconnecting and this woman is finding her birth mother. Her birth mother is a hugely transformative figure who wants to like alter Chicago and is running for alderman. Right. And you know, it's not just that um, Daniel, the character played by Noah Wiley is a, you know, grieving man who is in the throes of maybe finding new love with someone. Um, the person that he, his love interest is a perfect, handsome, lovable Muslim teacher who is delightful and it just it just feels as if oh my you know God, I know it, it, you know in, in every respect there's just kind of an authenticity gap and I think that when you're dealing so much with real world issues um, you can only suspend your disbelief so much well, right, right. Before, yeah. before it kind of starts to feel like it's all just a lot of different plot contrivances it's a little too perfect in terms of how you know yeah like he he found the only uh, gay Muslim uh, teacher in Chicago apparently and like that's who he falls in love with and then they have this very sort of informative and uncomfortable encounter at a gay coffee house where these two uh uh, white gay men come up and you're like oh my god what are you you know and stuff like that that yeah. it just felt like that I, I can't imagine that would happen. Maybe it does, but it just felt like it, it once again, it was like ticking a box, like teaching moment, teachable moment yeah. here. And I do think that uh, I just really wonder why Ava DuVernay and Greg Berlanti uh, brought this to CBS, you know, because I don't know that it would have been any better if it had been on another network, but I do think that being on CBS meant that it had to be a little bit more, uh, for lack of a better term, dumbed down. And, yeah. and like, I know I was like rage slacking with you about this. Um, there are certain things that just bug me on, on TV shows when they're just, it's, it's just so lazy. So I mentioned, of course, that the, the, the security tape of the shooting has gone missing and there's a whole thread about it. And at one point the security tape, Paul finds it and it's in, you know, it's in this location. He opens up the the box and there's just this VCR tape labeled security tape. 
And it's like, come on. It's so, it's so, you know, lazy. And then uh, there's, you know, there's just other things like that. It just feels very like, okay, we have to explain to, uh, in addition to, in addition to, you know, trying to delve into these incredibly complex and, and nuanced socio-political issues, we also have to make sure that we draw the line from A to B because nobody will know that that's the security tape unless it's labeled security tape. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, there's just so many of those shortcuts. And, you know, it's funny, you were kind of saying, why is this on CBS? You know, I, I try to keep an open mind and remember that, you know, in order to tackle these topics, you don't necessarily need to do it in a mature content, you know, R-rated right. way. I mean, like, um, you know, we've talked a lot about how the TV show American Crime, which was on ABC, mm-hmm. you know, that was an incredible piece of, um, you know, narrative fiction that was just so upfront about so many issues. And it did it in a way that, you know, w- without ever approaching the kind of content that an HBO or even an FX can do, um, felt it, it totally grown up and you know it, it, it didn't seem to be missing anything even though it was on a network with commercial breaks I mean right. you know we, you know what would happen uh, leading into commercial breaks on American crime would be so mind-boggling <laughs> in the context of things that often have commercial breaks right um, but you know then on the other side of things I think about a show like um, the shy uh, the Showtime sh- series which is also kind of a, a, a different kind of panorama of modern day Chicago um, and I, I don't love that show but it at least feels as if it's done a little bit extra work as far as getting the details right as right. far as making you believe that these people are from Chicago you know the red line kind of wants to cut back and forth across different socioeconomic corners of the city but you don't really feel that everything looks okay. Right. Everything kind of has that, that CBS sheen to it. Yes. Um, and I, I just think that, you know, all these things kind of add up, all these decisions add up, you know, it's, and so even if you're able to kind of, by virtue of the subject matter, get at some really interesting things, it feels kind of divorced from the characters in a way, even, um, you know, the officer, uh, who did the shooting, um, I just kind of found his internal struggle to be not that convincing in a way. It, it, right. it felt it felt a little bit like a a liberal dream of what a cop would be going through, and and, and I just I, I worry about that as 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 a liberal who dreams of many things. <laughs> I, I I I just felt a little not so convinced by that. It, it's right. too bad. I feel like you know everything we're saying. You know, I I want shows like this to exist, <laughs> but they just kind of need to be better. And what I mean by that is, you know, they they need to be smarter. And also, I just fell too often onto stereotypes like all the cops are um uh, that we know that we meet are basically with the exception of the one Puerto Rican cop who like blows everything wide open the all the cops are white Ash, Irish Catholic drunks basically who are racist though Paul and and racist in that sort of insidious way of it's not overt it's just more you know you it, these attitudes that pervade their worldview whereas uh you know Paul is somebody who's like well was he just a product of a bad environment or is he, you know, one in the same with, with them? And I just felt like there were a lot of shortcuts of like, okay, now we're having the, the Irish wake, you know, where everyone's drunk and like, and now, you know, he's going to have the, I don't know. It just felt, it just felt like 
I wish they had taken maybe one or two of these threads and really focused on them um, yeah. rather than trying to do so many. Um, Noah Wiley is fantastic. I do think that he was really good in this. I, you know, he has to play a lot of different things, a lot of grief, a lot of anger. Um, but he, you know, he's a really good actor and he kind of is, he kind of outacts everybody else, which is yeah. also semi problematic. Um, the woman who plays his daughter, Aaliyah Royale, uh, she's not a supernatural actress, but I found her likable. I think she's got um, a, a real presence to her. Um, but yeah, I do feel like Noah Wiley was like acting way up here on you know his top level, and everyone else was like CBS procedural level. And maybe that's yeah. just me. I don't know. It, it's too bad because even um, uh, you know Tia is really kind of meant to be in a lot of ways the other pole of the show. And, and I mean, you know, certainly like what's going on with her in the political realm and how it relates to her you know family experience as she kind of begins to reconnect with you know her biological daughter and with her her daughter's family you know i mean in a sense there's almost more going on with her there's not almost there is more going on with her and yet you know that's a character who you know without spoiling too much the most interesting stuff about that character to me only really happens towards the end right you know when here is someone who is a young transformative political figure you know she is an african-american woman running for office and you know that as a movement is something that is so central to the political life of our country right now in a really exciting and really visceral way um but you know you only kind of get a little bit of like a feeling that oh like you know in order to be a politician is are there things that she's going to have right, to do right. to change herself you know it is in a sense the most interesting story in any political story is what happens when the young idealist has to sort of start to do things that are brute force politics and the show seems to not want to really get into that for fear of making her too complicated, you, right. you know? And I, I just, I, I think that that's the sort of, when you feel that a character's journey is just kind of being a little bit kneecapped in, in deference to almost kind of, again, not to be mean, almost kind of propagandizing oh, yeah. um, for, for the message that she's trying to get across. I, I just, that feels like it is a missed opportunity in, in so many ways. Yeah, I just, you know, I think the show ends up being, uh, ends up really just preachifying for the most part, uh, as opposed to, you know, telling a story that has a message. And it's too bad. They really, you know, they, they really mean well <laughs> yeah you know? um, and it's it's and it, it, it's interesting it's a very interesting uh, release strategy uh the red line starts on april 28th that airs in two hour chunks every sunday um notably uh it, it is airing during the last four episodes of game of thrones uh, so i'm i'm I, I i worry that it may get lost in the shuffle in a lot of ways um but would definitely be intrigued to hear uh, what people think about it if they do check it out and i will say um it's nice to see noah wiley on the l platform again like it's very <laughs> like gave me some nice pleasant er flashbacks and i will say also that uh you know, I watched all of it. It does come to a relatively satisfying conclusion. If you're worried that like things are going to be left open ended, no, they will not. So, uh, if you invest your time, you know, you will get a conclusion to the story that won't make you want to set yourself on fire. You know what Noah Wiley was great in, Kristen? He was great in the Romanovs. 
I'm just gonna say that he was he was one of the best Romanoffs on, on the Romanoffs, and I I think he needs more to do in. He television. really does. Let's give him another job because, and ideally one where he, uh, just ideally one where he gets to do more than cry. Although he's excellent at crying, by the way. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's move on to our next show of the week. And this is a show, Darren, that I never expected to love, but now I simply can't live without it. Cobra Kai premiered last year on YouTube Premium, and it honestly seemed like a really dumb idea to me. A sequel to The Karate Kid featuring a now middle-aged Daniel and Johnny as grown-up karate rivals who still have beef decades later. But my God, Darren, Cobra Kai turned out to be such a well-crafted dramedy. It blends themes of redemption and regret with the teen soap drama and, of of course, a bunch of butt-kicking. Season 2 of Cobra Kai, which premieres April 24th on YouTube Premium, will continue the Ralph Macchio-Billy Zabka rivalry as Daniel opens up his own dojo, Miyagi-Do, to compete with Cobra Kai for the hearts and minds of Valley teens everywhere. So the other big development this season is the return of Sensei Kreese, played by Martin Cove. He's the scowling, brutish Cobra Kai founder who nearly choked Johnny to death in the second movie. That's not funny, but it is. Uh, he wants to help. He's back. He wants to help Johnny run the new Cobra Kai. And Johnny has to decide if he should give his mentor slash tormentor another chance. So, Darren, I've watched the first six episodes of season two. The show is like crack to me. And I am really enjoying it once again. Um, I love how it can segue from a really emotional moment, like Johnny telling his student Miguel about missing the birth of his child child because he was a drunk loser, to then a full-fledged karate showdown at a mall food court. William Zabka is hilarious, and he's really good at the more dramatic elements as well. And Ralph Macchio is just an ageless dreamboat. Um, You know I'm a total sucker for this show, Darren. I I need to know how you feel about it. Kristen, um, you last year were uh, so adamantly in favor of this show, you put it on your top 10 list, which, fun fact... We both had shows featuring Ralph Macchio on our respective top 10 list because he is great on HBO's The Deuce. Oh, my so gosh. Ralph, Ralph Macchio, official mascot of EW's TV critic. We win. love him so much. Um, Kristen, uh, despite the fact that I trust your opinion and despite the fact that uh, I, I tend to take all your recommendations very much to heart, um, I, I did not watch the first season because... I've really only seen the original Karate Kid like once, maybe on television when I was very, very young. I actually, if you asked me what is my most vivid memory of the Karate Kid franchise, I would have said the trailer for the next Karate Kid starring (laughs) Hilary Swank, um, which I remember vividly seeing in theaters for some reason. Just the trailer, not the actual movie. Sure. Um, I I dove into season two of Cobra Kai, knowing very little about it besides your love for it and and what you kind of teased me about what was happening this season. Um, this show is uh, created and mostly written by uh, John Hurwitz and Hayden Schlossberg, who were behind uh, the fourth American Pie movie, which uh, I-, I wasn't a huge fan of. Um, this is all a big prelude to saying, Kristen, I love this show. Yes, you do. I 
love Cobra Kai. Um, the, the first episode of the new season, I just dove right in. It begins with uh, a, a sort of really like epic fight sequence between Johnny and his former mentor who's returning from having tried to strangle him uh. in, uh, in, in Karate Kid 2, apparently. And just the vibe of this show I think it's remarkable. It really um, is. It is. It, it somehow manages to be. Um, it, it, it feels like it is very much a dedicated homage to the original franchise. Like even kind of only knowing what I vaguely know about it from watching the first movie. There's just a. There's a sense of deep abiding love for you know the music of the franchise, but also like the meaning of it. And yet I. I'm just so fascinated by the fact that, like, it feels to me like they have dug into the Karate Kid franchise and have found this incredible, like, metaphor for, like, the duality of man, almost. Um, I literally, Darren, last night as I was falling asleep, I literally sent myself an email, Cobra Kai as metaphor for our divided nation. Yes, yeah, and and, and the way that they've done it, and I'd love to know if this was, I'm sure this is already kind of present in the first season, Season, but in this season, you know, you kind of have Johnny. He is kind of coming off of a big success for Cobra Kai, and it is expanding. And you know, what does that mean for him? And meanwhile, Daniel is really in the early stages of creating his own dojo, and the show is so sincerely dedicated to portraying how you know the dojo that Danny is building very much in the spirit of his former mentor mm-hmm. um, and, and you know what that means and you know it, it is sort of owning all of the kind of you know cheesy wonderful wax on wax off stuff of you know doing karate that seems to, that seems to be you know more of a dance and that is all about kind of internal balance and you know how it kind of portrays that is so interesting contrasted with Cobra Kai who are you know they're very much the kind of like rough and tumble do anything to win they keep on like showing their motto on screen um but but somehow Johnny is like not the villain yeah and somehow like you really do feel that I, I, I can't I'm trying to think of another show that has done this so effectively where you do have these central, you know, antagonists, Johnny and Danny, and their hatred for each other. Um, and whenever they're together, you really feel that really vividly. But you're also still rooting for both of them separately yes. in a way that I find so fascinating. Um, was this a show that kind of right out the gate in season one? Did you feel like it kind of was grasping all these ideas? Or is that something that that it, it, it kind of evolved into over the course of season one and, and into season two? Well, you know, with season one, the real theme was sort of about redemption and can people change? And obviously, you know, the big sort of twist that was so brilliant about season one is, you know, Johnny, the guy who the rich kid who tormented uh Daniel, you know, all through high school, he's now the underdog. You know, he's broke. He lives in this crappy apartment. He does odd jobs. He gets fired for putting a a lady's TV on the wrong wall. Um, Meanwhile, Daniel is now wealthy, runs a bunch of uh, car dealerships, and he has a happy family, and he's on top. So, you know, they what they did was they you know flipped that dynamic and then they made Johnny somebody who uh, was trying to redeem himself not only by um, uh, you know creating this new dojo bringing back Cobra Kai but also realizing and learning through his students who he both verbally abused but also listened to um, you know that 
you know, the way of the fist, strike first, no mercy, isn't always the right way to go. So he goes through this evolution while Daniel has to, you, you kind of realize that Daniel has lost touch with, you know, everything he learned from Mr. Miyagi. And he's kind of just coasting through life as this, you know, using karate as a gimmick at his, at LaRusso Auto Group, you know, to sell, <laughs> sell uh, cars. And so he has to go through that journey as well. So that was season one. Season two, it's more about, you know, now that Johnny's evolved somewhat, he's still totally a cretin in, in all the best ways. He's hilarious. Um, he's, he's, the reemergence of Crease uh, is sort of making him question, like, should I be evolving or do I really need to be uh, doing this sort of strike first, no mercy yeah. uh outlook on life he feels strongly and there's an amazing sequence later um, i can't spoil it but later in the season uh he reconnects with some people from his past and and they're like dude you know crease is the devil you should not you know that was a terrible that was a terrible way to live your life when we went out into the world with that no mercy attitude we got our asses kicked like that's not how to live your life and so he has to he he's realizing like he's still trying he's on his own journey but he's still trying to decide like do i fully reform or you know do i fully put this way behind me or is is it the only way to win um meanwhile daniel's got this dojo that's all about balance and you know finding the good in people and nonviolence and things like that so it really is a very philosophical debate between these two dojos yes. and um and it really did i mean i really did like last night as i was falling asleep i was like oh my god it's a metaphor for america yes. and and, and it, it's it's handled you know so well with such good humor and, yes. and with, with with characters who are all just so well drawn um there's a moment in i think the first episode when um daniel sort of tells uh, his you know he only has a couple of students one of whom is his, is his daughter um, and, and the other of whom is Johnny's son so there's just a lot of great like kind of family dynamics yes. at work there um, but he tells them you know Cobra Kai isn't our enemy there are no enemies damn and right yes it's such an interesting kind of conflict where you have him and, and uh, you know he's kind of running his his you know I, I believe he calls it the Miyagi Dojo just um, Miyagi-Do yeah uh, um, and so he's kind of running it it is very much this interesting debate where one side kind of wants there to not be a debate. One yeah. side is saying like, no, like we're all in this together. Whereas at Cobra Kai and now, you know, they are very much the kind of success figures at the beginning of this season. Um, there is this sort of like, no, like, you know, life is a conflict and you know it you know you don't need honor and i just i love i mean william zabka billy zabka is giving an incredible performance he's so good he's so incredibly funny and like the character is written so well like i don't want to spoil too much but my favorite thing so far is he gets he gets a computer for the first time and he finally gets connected to the wi-fi and of course the first thing he googles is hot babes and it's so perfect and like like, just the idea of him, you know, last season he had never even, you know, heard of Facebook or anything like that. And this season he's, he's venturing his way into the digital universe. Like he gets a computer, he gets a smartphone, he tries Tinder, like him dating is freaking hilarious. But it, he's still very much, you know, the unfrozen caveman uh, guy from the 80s. And that's so fun to play. But he also he does a really nice job. Uh, you know, interacting with the kids in terms of telling them like, you know, I was raised on this no mercy sort of philosophy and it did not work out for me, you know, yeah. like it really kind of ruined my life and I need, I, you know, 
you can feel that he is really uh, invested in making sure that doesn't happen to these kids. And, and cause even even there, and the show is so sharp about how it kind of will contrast um, what he's doing with what Danny is doing and how that affects all their students. You know, the fact that he is, as you said, this kind of unfrozen 80s caveman. And, you know, when, when, when the person at the pawn shop says, like, you've never owned a computer before, Johnny responds, yeah, I'm not a nerd. Like... <laughs> There's moments where, I mean, you know, this is a show that when it was pitched, I, I was just like, oh, God, is it going to be like a lame 80s pastiche? Me too. And, and, you know, can we get past 80s nostalgia already? You know, Johnny is a character who just represents 80s nostalgia and feels it very deeply. And yet, this season, as he's becoming a teacher, there's a feeling where he's kind of like, you know, maybe I have to evolve a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, th th there's a great moment early on where he's even kind of framed. You have Cree behind him and then Johnny and Johnny is talking to um, his kind of best student uh, uh, the character played by Miguel and there's a moment where you're like wow like this is this is like the Cobra Kai lineage right yes. here from, from sensei to student and that you know Johnny does kind of want to change contrasted with you know Danny as much as he's kind of preaching this, you know, Cobra Kai isn't the enemy, there are no enemies, we're all in this together, he's oddly the more traditional one. He is kind of like rebuilding this dojo. You see him putting up Mr. Miyagi's face on the wall next to the people who taught Mr. Miyagi. Just, you know, there's so many interesting layers to everything in the show while being a delightful, very funny, sincere, you know, teen family yes. dramedy. Um, th th that, by the way... <laughs> This show's portrayal of the valley is so wonderful. Like, you know, it it, it really kind of owns this idea that I, I, I think was maybe partially present in the franchise already, where just like, you know, if you're the best at karate in the valley, then you run the whole place. Like, I <laughs> like this universe this it is almost an alternate reality where like everything leads up to the all valley karate tournament and like everybody goes to that and there's literally like a competition between dojos about for the you know for uh, for the teens in the valley and it really it like you know what universe is this but i don't care i'll i'll you know i'll set that aside because why not but and i do love there's this whole sort of romeo and juliet thing happening where uh uh, Johnny's son, Robbie, he's estranged from his son, and Robbie essentially uh, now uh, is going to Miyagi-Do. He started by sort of, you know, trying to do this to make his dad angry. You know, I'm going to start hanging out with Daniel LaRusso just to uh, mess with my dad. But now he's really like he he admires Daniel and he looks up to him as a father figure that he never had. And meanwhile, he's uh, got a crush on Daniel's daughter, Samantha, uh, who uh, has a crush on him. And so there's that element, you know, these two uh, young kids from sort of warring families uh, falling in love. But then there's also the love triangle because last season, Samantha broke up with her boyfriend, Miguel, played by Zola Maradueña. Um, uh, he was from Parenthood, and he's great. Um, and he's at Cobra Kai, and so that's a big rift between them. And you know, there's just there's all this great teen soap stuff on top of like, you know, the the more uh, facing your mortality elements of like, can I become a better man in my life? You know, I, yeah. I I've lived my whole life disappointing people and myself. Is that something that I can overcome at this stage in my life? And then you know, and then there's like giant 
you know, knockdown dragouts at the food court, which is just hilarious. Um, like, also, do teenagers still go to the mall? And do they still eat at food courts? Somebody tweet us with an answer because I have no idea. I, I I feel like in the valley they do. Yeah, I, maybe. I, I I want to believe that, but you know, I mean, it's funny because in a show where we're talking about, um, you know, a, a, a very different uh, television show, The Red Line, which you know is is trying to portray a real life city, and you know, just in a lot of ways, it feels like it makes it feel synthetic. Yeah. Um, Cobra Kai does the exact opposite, where it is taking the most synthetic version of the valley. Yes. And it, it makes it feel Dickensian, you know. And, and even like you know, again, it all goes back to, I'm just really impressed with the fact that they've managed to take these two oppositional characters, these two characters who were like nemeses in like an 80s teen movie. Yeah. And somehow they've just really enriched them and, and made it that, you know, in different scenes, you can root for or against each of them. Um, I'd like to know, Kristen, um, because, you know, again, you, you put season one on your 10 best shows of the year list last year. Um, how, how does season two compare in, in general for, for you? Um, you know, how does it how does it rank next to that? And in the context of the whole franchise? You know, I, I am still really loving it. I think, uh, I guess, honestly, I'm liking it almost as much, if not as much, you know, obviously, part of the joy of season one was like going into it thinking like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And then just like completely getting my ass handed to me. I loved it so much. You know, it was just it just won me over. And, you know, uh, as I believe the headline of my initial review was it kicked the crap out of my heart. Um, and so that, you know, certainly now going into season two, I already knew like, oh, I love the show, but I do think it's doing a great job at maintaining these characters I'm starting to worry a little bit about like I'm not sure how long this rivalry can go on I think yeah. it's building to something and maybe they will have a uh maybe they will have a, a you know reconciliation and we can just all live as one happy karate family in the valley I don't know um but I do think that uh it's just as funny the the younger cast members are really quite good us uh, uh Mary Mouser plays Samantha LaRusso um but I also want to <laughs> there's one character named Dimitri who is this you know kind of a nerdy character who uh he, he's watched his best friend, uh, who now goes by the name of Hawk. Uh, he's watched his best friend sort of transform into this jerky bully who goes to Cobra Kai and picks on other kids. And, you know, Dimitri feels a little left out of, you know, now he has no one to turn to because he's like super nerdy and awkward <laughs> and can't. And that actor is uh, Gianni Desenzo. And he's uh, he's really very funny. And Hawk, the actor, uh, is Jacob Bertrand. Hawk says to him at one point, you know, you know what happens to snitches? And, and Dimitri goes, they get immunity. <laughs> and it's like that like this whole there's they're expanding the role of the the younger kids and they're really fun like they're really cute on top of it's it, it did a nice job in season one of giving you something like for the people who have never heard of Karate Kid as well as uh, for those of us who grew up with it so I think they've done a nice job you know sort of fleshing out both casts um, yeah. and so I yeah I really I'm really enjoying it and I just I hope that uh I'm not sure how long it can go on, but I do think that uh, maybe one more season without, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, without yeah, stretching I'm, I'm, it. Yeah, I mean, it really is, you know, full credit to creators, uh, Josh Hell, John Hurwitz, and Hayden Schlossberg. Yes. Because it, it's so difficult to 
make the kind of deep sequel revival spin-off whatever you want to call this um that successfully honors the original while also evolving from it and even being smarter than it in a lot of ways you know it's so hard to do that without seeming like you're making fun of the original and just this right. one you know it's it's such a human comedy and just some of the throwaway lines that i started to jot down Kristen, because when when johnny is kind of telling his cobra kai students you know we, you know we have to do this on the we're we're putting out a commercial on the internet he just sort of walks away and says and then when you're done uh, put on it like a hash brown team cobra kai or something <laughs> <laughs> it's just, I don't know what it is. I almost, I almost like dropped like my my laptop off my laugh because I was laughing so hard at that. And so I'm, I'm. This is a real gem of a show, and I hope people do find it. uh, However, they watch shows on uh, YouTube Premium. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it is a subscription service, and it's a little unfortunate because uh, YouTube has actually started moving away from scripted series. after going into a big push for scripted series, but I would say like either sign up YouTube TV or, you know, maybe just check it out that you can usually watch the first episode for free uh, and then see if you want it. It's, I think something like 10 or $11 a month. I will say finally, and this is probably uh, a little tragic to think, but I do also, one of the things I love about it is like the redemption of William Zabka too. Like here's a guy that played every, you know, villain in eighties movies from just one of the guys, which was a great movie by the way, um, to, you know, the karate kid. He, he was typecast as this, you know, snotty, obnoxious eighties villain. And here he is reprising that character and showing the world, like, guess what? I can really act bitch. Like he can actually, he's acting in in a full range of uh, human emotions in a way that like wouldn't, you would never imagine. And it's just such a wonderful thing to see. And it makes me happy to, you know, and Ralph Macchio, like, again, he's worked consistently uh, through his life, but can you imagine coming, back to this role that made him a star and getting to play play it in a totally new way as a grown man yeah i mean even just like the scenes with them two together oh so good there is the meta level that almost brings a tear to my eye and again i am not a big karate kid fan i literally saw these two in a movie when they were very young you know i probably saw it 25 years ago or something but just the fact that like they're together on screen and they're both so good it it makes me a little verklempt like it's just like wow like you know 34 years later like you guys are really taking this and and running with the material and And they're so fun together. There is a <laughs> episode in season one where they kind of, they, um, Daniel takes Johnny on a test drive. It's a whole thing. And um, there's sort of a minor Tommy boy homage. And then they end up getting a drink together. And like, I loved it so much. And I hope that we see more of that in this season. I mean, we've definitely seen some moments of them together that have been much more uh, sort of, they're at each other's throats. But I, I do hope that we get... Uh, uh, a little bit more of the broing out that we had in season one, mm. which was hilarious. Uh, so Cobra Kai returns on April 24th on YouTube Premium. Check it out. You will not regret it. I, I wasn't even a huge Karate Kid fan either. I saw it once or twice, but like the movie didn't mean a whole lot to me, but the, the series is now like just one of my favorite things and pretty much all I want to talk about. So if you want to talk about it, tweet at me because I am here for that. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back and speak to the showrunner of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power.
Hey everyone, I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce Season 5 of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. I'm very excited to welcome this week's guest to Best of Shows. Noelle Stevenson is the showrunner and executive producer of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. The animated reboot was one of my absolute favorite new shows of last year. Season 2 streams this Friday, April 26th on Netflix. Uh, Noelle, thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So talk to me a little bit about how you came to be showrunning She-Ra. Um, were you a fan of the original show? Uh, how did the opportunity kind of arise to uh, have such a you know dominant role in uh, rebooting and uh, reviving uh, that show for the modern era? Um, I didn't actually grow up with She-Ra. Um, that was a little bit before my time. Um, but I think when DreamWorks got their, the property of She-Ra, they were looking for someone to reimagine it. Um, and they were interested in a take that would sort of, uh, you know, appeal to kids of today so that they could have their own uh, experience with She-Ra while still paying homage to the original. Um, and so that was something that, you know, it just seemed like the perfect project for me. It was something... Uh, the property was just so cool and so interesting with so many amazing characters, and I just immediately latched onto it. Um, and so I brought a pitch for the show to uh, to DreamWorks, uh, pitched it to them, uh, developed it with them, wrote the pilot, wrote the Bible, and and from there on, I uh, I became the showrunner. So it all just sort of fell into place. And one of the things I really love so much about this show is um, it really owns and radiates all the stuff that I really loved about that earlier era of animation. Um, it kind of captures, um, for, for lack of a better word, it captures the sparkle. Um, and it kind of has that sort of, it's magic, it's science fiction, it's everything all kind of mixed together uh, world behind it. Um, but at the same time, I, I think there's a real sense of humor uh, to your show. And even like a kind of self-awareness that... That never feels snarky, uh, which, which, which I think is a really specific tone to hit. Um, I'd be interested to know what are the kind of the challenges of sort of paying homage to the original show while also kind of making it modern and kind of taking it in your own direction. Yeah, I mean, me and the crew, like we have so much love for the original, and and so much of what we want to do is show that love and, like you said, that sparkle, that heart, like figure out a way to capture that in a way that's like, you know, even audiences who had no experience with the original can, like, like find what made the original special and gravitate to it. Um, and people who did watch the original can find a version of that here as well. And, and you know, I, I really wanted to capture the core of the original show. Um, but at the same time, part of making a reboot is that you have to go kind of like off the beaten trail a little bit like you have to let certain things about the original go so that it can forge its own trail and be something that stands on its own and that's new 
Um, part of it is just that you have to break that new ground. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges is that you want to, you know, like you have so many cool things to work with here. Like the Masters of the Universe world is just full of so much, just basically everything. If you're a fan of something sci-fi or fantasy or anything within that world, you'll find it somewhere in this property. And so, like, wanting to pay homage to that and capture that again while also creating something new. Um, so for me, that, that comes a lot with just like, all right, we're going to have to set aside the associations that people will have with this. People are going to uh, assume something about it because of the original, and we're going to have to very gently kind of put that aside and recreate it here, create something new that stands on its own, mm-hmm. um, which at times can be a big challenge. But I think... Uh, overall, I think we really ended up striking the balance that I was looking for that does, like, it is very loving towards the original, um, but it also manages to just sort of uh, become its own thing, sort of, like, uh, grow into something that kids of today can, you know, sort of just have their own She-Ra experience without having to sort of know all the lore in the background of uh, the original series, necessarily. Yeah, I definitely, as a a somewhat grown-up kid, I kind of experienced it that way, not knowing a whole lot about the original, um, but kind of feeling the love for the original mixed with this sense of just the the possibility of this universe. Um, And for me, that kind of extends to the characters. Uh, For a while now, I've kind of been telling people that Katra, um, who's sort of the main antagonist of the show, is like the secret hero of the show. Which that may be a, a, a pretty intense read on it, but um, her dynamic with uh, the main character with Adora, uh, I, I think it's in season two. Someone kind of says, uh, even when you're trying to kill each other, you can tell there's a real bond there, and I <laughs> I, I, I really kind of love that dynamic. Can, can you kind of talk about creating that on the show? I feel like Katra is a very complicated character on a show targeted at anyone, much less on on a show that could be kind of enjoyed by uh, by uh, kids. Yeah, you know, one thing that I really responded to about the original series was that um, the Horde, like, it was very kind of, like, good and evil. The sides were very clear. The good guys lived in fairy palaces, and the bad guys lived in the Fright Zone. And their boss had, like, a collar made out of femurs. So it was like there wasn't a question about who was good and who was evil. But at the same time you cared about the bad guys as much as you did the heroes. In a weird way, they were sort of the dual protagonists of the series. There'd be whole episodes where they never even left the fright zone. They just, you know, Scorpio would get in a fight with Katra, or the imp would get on their nerves, and they'd chase each other around for a while. And these are people that you liked, and that you wanted to know more about, and that you wanted to hang out with, even though they were the antagonists. You were rooting for the heroes to win, but you also kind of like wanted to know everything about these bad guys because they seemed very human. They all always seemed like they had a lot of hubris and like a really strong want, maybe even more so than the heroes. So that was something that was like I really wanted to explore and flesh out in this version of things. I think that Adora and Katra honestly function as sort of dual protagonists at times. Mm-hmm. Like you sort of see that like they're going through similar things on opposite sides and while we really wanted to make it clear that the Horde are the bad guys, that what they're doing is very destructive and very harmful for everyone on Etheria, that, like, their reasons for wanting this, even if it's not something that we would ever defend or or agree with, that they have this very human desire, and that's what they're working towards. So, yeah. you know, Katja doesn't... Like, she's not doing this so that she can, like like 
she's not doing this because she wants to be like the king of the world necessarily, not just because of that. Like she's doing it because she wants something from people around her. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that I think is what, why she becomes such a relatable character because I think we've all like been there of like, Oh, I need to like show everyone what I'm capable of. And so in that way, the, the villains, even while being the clear antagonist of the story, you still kind of feel for them and you still kind of want to hang out with them and you want to know what they're about and you want to know what their wants are, um, even if ultimately like you don't want them to succeed at destroying the world. Well, um, so yeah. yeah, and I think that's just, it's always like that was something that, about the original series, that kind of two-hander aspect that I really wanted to capture here. Um, you, yeah, we wanted the viewers to care about both of them and kind of root for the villains to be better and root for the heroes to also like uh, have that empathy for them as well, even while trying to defeat them. I, I mentioned the show's kind of a sense of humor, which for me kind of works in so many registers. And uh, there's a kind of a very minor kind of background subplot in season two where Katra, who's kind of had this huge promotion, um, you know, a huge promotion in a totalitarian technological nightmare mm-hmm. place called the Fright Zone. Um, she seems to be struggling a lot with like the bureaucratic details of being in charge. And like, you know, I, I think she says, oh, like, you know, I have all this busy work now. I was kind of wondering, is that a little bit of like show? runner autobiography coming through there <laughs> <laughs> uh if you're looking for it <laughs> there might be uh there might be quite a bit of that in there <laughs> uh-huh. honestly and and not just um uh not just for me but for my crew as well i think uh we're, we're a pretty young crew overall uh a lot of us are doing these jobs for the first time and so i think as we were like uh finding out how to do this job and make this show um, and all of the difficulties that came with that, there was a lot of uh, us kind of seeing ourselves in the characters and putting ourselves into the characters. So it it sort of became about, um, you know, not just our relationships to each other, but to the job, to being a leader, like what our responsibilities are when it came to that. And so I think all of us, we just found ways to explore that throughout mm-hmm. the show. Um, so uh, kind of on that note, Noel, um, so I, I really enjoy your show, which is animated. I enjoy a lot of uh, kind of contemporary animated television. Um, I have next to no understanding of how animated television is made. And when I when I see an animated show that I like, I, I feel like I'm kind of a caveman looking at a wormhole. It's just it's so far beyond it's so far beyond my understanding. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued to hear you say that so many people involved in the show, it was kind of their first time being in that kind of role. Um, I, I know that you you'd worked previously on a couple of animated series what were the kind of were the kind of process oriented things in production that you knew you wanted to do differently or that you'd kind of learned from your previous work you know it's something that i think one working in this industry you realize eventually that like you know just every show you've ever worked on every show that's ever made it to the air that's gotten made even the ones that haven't it's all a miracle it's amazing (laughs) that you know these shows exist at all because there's so much that goes into them so many different people have to like lend their talents and their hard work and their passion to this project for it to ever exist at all and so like i am just amazed by every cartoon that exists because that was you know carried there on the backs of so many people, you know, willing it to exist and seeing this world together. So this show is no exception, um, but also every show is different. It's its own thing. So even when, 
you have been, had an experience before in the industry. It doesn't necessarily, you could go to your next show and it's just, it functions totally different, even with the same crew members, even with, you know, you, like, you're always having to kind of relearn how to do, uh, how to make a show, how to make a story, how to create characters, how to, you know, engineer a pipeline, depending on where you are, who you're with, like, what the, cl- like, what the uh, environment is, like, just all of those things are, every tiny thing they all come together to create what makes a show unique and what makes it mm-hmm. special. Um, so I think that there's so much of just learning on the go, just learning as you do it, realizing like, okay, we tried this, it caused these problems, so next time let's try it like this. And eventually you just you figure out the rhythm, you figure out the interplay between the crew, and eventually, um, you know, that is what goes into making the show, you know, uh, mm-hmm. special. Like, uh-huh. there you can't have two shows twice. They all have, you know, just so many things about them that make them unique. I'd be intrigued to know, just looking back at season one, um, are there any learning experiences that really stand out to you, either in terms of, you know, individual episodes or in terms of kind of broader things that kind of went on uh, in in the production of that season? There's so much we had to learn uh, from <laughs> the first season. So, I mean, I'm really excited for people to, to see our next season and to see us sort of like, you know, uh, evolving as a crew and as a show. Um, I was thinking the other day about this kind of like anecdote. Um, uh, we realized in the writers' room, we realized that Adora got knocked unconscious a lot in the first season, and so we had this rule in the writers' room going forward. After a while, I don't know how well we stuck to this, um, but we were like, Adora always has to be awake, no matter what's going on. She's got to be awake, and it was just like one of those things. It's like you don't even realize that you're falling into like rhythms, and then you're like, oh wait. Um, okay, let's try and, like, course correct on that. <laughs> so it just became this thing of, like, like, you know, if someone would pitch an idea and someone else in the room would just go, no, Adora's always awake. <laughs> so, I mean, it's just, like, stuff like that. It's just you, you really you get into a rhythm with, uh, with your crew and with uh, just the people involved uh, to find out what works for you. Yeah. On the other side of things, to think about um, just uh, things that feel very discovered, or at least on the on the audience side, that seem to be kind of evolving very naturally. Um, the character Scorpia um, has some incredible showcase moments in season two, and you know she's voiced by uh, the absolutely fantastic Lauren Ash. Um, is that a character where you kind of had a sense of? I mean, in season two, she has some moments that are just really wonderful and really central. Um, was that something that you'd envisioned in kind of in kind of reincorporating that character into the, into the reboot, or did that kind of happen as you? kind of went deeper and deeper with her. You know, Scorpia, I think, is such a special character. Like, I'm I'm so excited for viewers to see more of her personality and, and what she's about. She really became a fan favorite, especially on our crew. Um, and it was really, it felt really organic and natural, I think, so much because of uh, Lauren as well. Um, she brought this real, like, both humor, like, she, like, so much of uh, Scorpia's lines come from ad-libs that Lauren did, like, on the spot. <laughs> Uh, we developed this kind of running joke, or, the, or she developed this running joke, where you know every time she's trying to get Catra's attention, and Catra's not paying attention, she just goes, "Catra, Catra, Catra, hey Catra, Catra," <laughs> and like that was just something she started doing, and we started writing it into the scripts, and like you know, um, uh, like she just really like kind of grew and evolved in front of our eyes, and, and became this character, and. I knew that it was important to me for all these characters, but, you know, even when they seem like they might be a joke character or, like, like maybe 
like they are more comedic, but they still have this sort of rich inner life and these complicated inner feelings and, and like kind of taking her wants seriously, even though her wants are, are fairly, you know, kind of sweet um, and, and small in some ways. Like we just really wanted to like delve into her and like mm-hmm. how she saw the world and what she wanted out of, out of the world. Cause she is like, she's also a villain. It's so hard to believe sometimes because she's one of the sweetest, you know, most caring, most giving characters on the show, but she's a villain. Like, how does that happen? Like, how do you, you know, how does she justify that in her own mind? Um, mm-hmm. And so I really think that this next season and the season after it are really, really, they have some really great Scorpion moments. And I, I can't wait for people uh, to see more of her. So uh, watching season two, I got to episode seven uh, without spoiling anything. The episode ended and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm very excited to watch the next episode. Uh, and then the season was over. Um, why? Uh, which which means that this is a shorter season than last season. Uh, what was the kind of thinking uh, about this kind of uh, about uh, altering the kind of release structure for uh, after after season one? Um, that was done a little bit more. That was sort of a uh done by the studio and by Netflix, just uh, the idea is to bring episode drops uh, more frequently to viewers. So instead of it Mm -hmm. being every six months, it's like we can do, you know, uh, maybe every couple of months or we can release more episodes. So Mm -hmm. just the idea is like kind of keeping uh, more of a steady output of episodes. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's exciting. Um, It was something that, you know, obviously we didn't do that with our first season. So it was something that uh, the cliffhangers sort of... um, developed around that for the arcs that we had planned. So you'll sort of see the culmination of that in the next season. Um, but yeah, I mean, hopefully it keeps people excited and interested um, and, uh, and excited for the next season drop. Um, so I want to ask you a little bit about uh, your life before She-Ra, because um, you had worked a little bit on uh, the revival of DuckTales, uh, which is also a show that I really, really enjoy. Um, what was that experience like, and was there anything that you kind of took from that uh, when you were kind of developing uh, She-Ra mm-hmm. and, the, and the Princesses of Power? You know, I got so lucky in this industry because my first job was such a great positive experience for me, and I learned so much from the people that I worked with. Um, and that was actually on Wander Over Yonder at Disney, um, so I was working with like these amazing people who were really kind to me and, and really taught me a lot. Um, and then a lot of those uh, same people were sort of part of the DuckTales reboot. Um, but I, I found this thing on, on Wander, which is a very comedy-centric show, in a way that like you know is is uh, was sort of a challenge for me because I had to push myself to really focus on the comedy when I was like I really want to get into the, like this dr- dramatic aspect or this angst <laughs> or like this other thing. Um, and so, but it was this kind of like it's like this space epic show that happens to star a Muppet. Um, <laughs> so I, I like, you know, working on that show, I had like, and, and honestly working with that crew, like there are a lot of crew members, um, who did like really love the matches of the universe world. So I felt like I sort of, uh, got, uh, like I got into it through them. Um, mm-hmm. and like, so this, I, I, I developed this love for this like space epic style and and I there were these episodes that I really wanted to do that were like way too dramatic for the show itself um and that I carried that a lot over I was like all right one day I'm gonna like I'm gonna like do this episode I one way or another on some show or another I'm gonna do this episode uh for example like the jailbreak episode I really wanted to do this like big jailbreak episode um and uh 
so I think it just started me kind of like honing uh, my interest in what it was that I was really excited in pursuing. And I did learn a lot of lessons um, about what I was excited about in narratives uh, from working on those shows. And working with the DuckTales crew, I was involved, um, again, it was like a lot of the same people. I was involved uh, at the very at the very beginning, and then, you know, I, I didn't, uh, I went on to do She-Ra instead. Um, but it's honestly just like, it's such a great group of people. So, like, I learned so much about stories, so much about, you know, uh, like teamwork and collaborating. And I just, uh, I've had such a positive experience, um, uh-huh. both on DuckTales and on Wonder. Um, looking ahead to uh, this new season, which again is uh, streaming on Friday, uh, but I've been fortunate enough to see all of it, really enjoy what I saw. Um, I had a couple of questions about, we sort of learn a lot more about really all of the characters. I, I sort of feel like, you know, the, the retitling of this show as Princesses of Power, um, it seems like a real mission statement insofar as like, just in this season especially, we're just seeing a lot more of everyone who's kind of around all the main characters. Um, and in one episode, we find out that one character happens to have two dads, which seems to- totally natural and appropriate. And I'd hope at this point in history, um, that can kind of happen in a story without much conversation. But I- I'd be intrigued to know, um, what are the conversations like about LGBTQ representation in animated shows now? I mean, is that even a conversation? Or is it just sort of something that it's in there and no need to have any further, you know, talk about it? <laughs> It's absolutely a conversation, and it's absolutely something that, like, I think um, people in leadership positions need to be very thoughtful about and very conscious of, because, you know, our hope is that it will seem effortless, that this will seem like the most natural thing in the world, that, you know, you'll see it in the show and just be like, oh, yeah, of course, and go with it. But that doesn't mean that actually creating those moments is effortless. You always have to, even if, you know, if if you want to seem like you're not making a statement, that in and of itself is making a statement. You're always mm-hmm. making a statement one way or another. Um, so for us on this show, so much of what I wanted to do was create a world that felt really rich and fleshed out, um, and that really just included queer themes in the core of what the show was. That there was just there that we could make it seem very natural. That we didn't necessarily have to do, uh, you know. Uh, any kind of like PSA moment about like what it meant that that watching it just feels really natural, really easy, really fun. That those characters are still really fun characters with the same amount of like complicated uh, feelings and and rich interior lives that we would want to see from any other character. But it is something that you have to sort of like work at constantly and be very mm-hmm. conscious of and be conscious of the impact of it and also get you know your executives, your higher ups on board with that and. Um, and so it, it's a very constant thing, but I think it's it's super worth doing, I think, for, for everyone, for everyone who's in that kind of position of telling a story. Um, it's, it's, I think it's something that's really, it's, it's really important to do. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for people to see, uh, you know, more of what we've, more of what we've done with that with the show. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's it's so meaningful and, and so exciting. Um, and in general, I, I guess I'd love to know, you know, 
uh, on the topic of things that I don't understand, but I'm fascinated by, um, you know, one of the things I really love about this show is that, you know, I enjoy it and I'm, you know, a million years old, but my niece also really enjoys it. And she's six and a half right now and is kind of, you know, certainly experiencing it in her own way. But I, I kind of admire that about the show that it does seem to work on so many registers. Um, what are the kind of particular challenges of making a show that, you know, kids are going to be watching it? Because it seems to me like interesting kids in something is the hardest thing <laughs> that mm -hmm. anyone could do. And it seems like this show has really had that kind of, you know, it, it's found that audience among the other audiences. Um, like, are, are there things where you're kind of like, you know, um, this wouldn't necessarily speak to that audience or we have to think about how we're going to arrange this for potentially like younger viewers? So my outlook on this is like, and we'll see how successful we are at this as the show continues to come out. But I was really, really um, I was dead set on making sure that the show did appeal to children. I think a lot of the temptation, especially when you're rebooting a property with a lot of uh, nostalgia attached to it like this, is to sort of cater more to adult fans. Um, but it, I, it was really important to me that while we still had that adult appeal, that we were first and foremost for children. Now, this is where I get, like, it gets a little bit more um, complicated because I also think that children are capable of handling weighty themes mm -hmm. um, or, or things that are scary or things that are sad um, because we we have a lot of that in the show as well. And honestly, like, the, the stuff that I grew up with from my childhood, the things that I remember the most that I hold the closest to my heart are the TV shows or the movies where I had a really big feeling, where I felt really sad or really scared in a safe way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's a lot of what we're trying to do here as well, is like not talk down to kids, sort of just like uh, present the world as we see it in a way that does supply some sort of like, where we kind of work through what we're seeing together, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. We're not trying to deliver the answers like packaged up in a neat little bow, but we're really trying to like we're, we're assuming a lot of intelligence, even of our child audience, because I do think that children, they do understand a lot yeah. more than we sometimes give them credit for or we'd be tempted to um, assume. But at the same time, I like despite all of that, I always wanted to keep that lightness as well and the humor. Mm -hmm. um, and making sure that it never just got like oppressive or, or grimdark or anything like that, um, that we really kept that balance. It's like this is a fun world. These are fun characters who we love. They sometimes are sad. They sometimes are afraid. They sometimes don't get along or, or there are broken friendships and relationships. And, and those are things that I think children care about a lot and think about a lot because they affect them too. Mm. Um, and so like making sure that even when there are world-ending stakes, that we're also thinking about the character's relationship to each other. It, almost those two things are equally important. Like, I'm fighting with my mom and prom is tomorrow. <laughs> it's just <laughs> as important as like, oh no, the world is, is going to end from this thing. Like, we have to stop it. Um, so it was really, you know, again, we'll see how uh, younger audiences respond to that as we go on, but it is my hope that um, that there is something for everyone here and that children specifically um, feel like this is for them and that they uh, they can 
like experience this range of emotion in a very safe way. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we'll see if that works. <laughs> yeah, well, it's 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 that kind of clash with the personal and the cosmic, and I I think you know uh, you're kind of referencing the Princess Prom episode from last season it was just one of my favorite episodes of, of television last year, and I feel like that kind of really hit everything that you're describing. Mm-hmm. It's very deeply relatable, while also fate of the world stakes kind of hovering over over the background. Yeah. <laughs> I think that it's like, I mean, it's just, it's something that, uh, it does feel just as important. Like, oh no, I'm fighting with my friend is sometimes the biggest feeling in the world, even when there is something, you know, that's, that's much more mm-hmm. important in a global sense. Like, that is still the biggest thing, um, even to us as adults, but I think especially to children. So, you know, that's, uh, something that we always try and, um, uh, keep in mind. Noel, uh, we like to ask everybody who comes on our show a couple of questions. First of all, um, what TV show was the first show you remember loving? Or, or, you know, what was the first show you remember being really, like, fascinated or really obsessed with? Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't grow up with a lot of TV, honestly. I'm trying to remember the first TV show that I was, that I even watched. I would watch more, like, VHS, like, movies and stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Like what? But I, um, like, uh, you know, we had, like, Winnie the Pooh, um, we had, uh, like, a bunch of Christian stuff, we had this, like, uh, I guess this is a series, I guess this counts, um, it was, like, a anime called Superbook that was about, like, these, uh, characters who get sucked into the Bible and, like, meet Jesus and meet, like, uh, Bible characters and, and they play a part in the, um, Bible story. Wait a second, so, was that, the, wait a second, was that the story where it's, like, the three, like, modern day kids and each, yeah, each time they're in a different... and their robot friend, Gizmo. Um, yeah, and they okay. Into, they get sucked into the Bible and, uh... Uh, and they meet like Bible characters, and uh, and it's like it's pretty. I don't know. There's like some pretty scary stuff in it. The one we had was like the um, the like Noah's Ark, um, <laughs> and it was like you watched like the flood like devastate the world. Um, <laughs> through oh, the fascinating. Eyes of, like, anime children. So. That's really interesting. Uh, yeah, uh, that was like the first TV show that I remember watching. Uh huh. That's interesting. We had a, I, I was a um, uh, Catholic school kid, and we had I think it must have been an earlier version of that because I don't recall there being any robots in it. But it was kind of similar. Each episode was sort of a different story, and as you point out, some of the Old Testament stories, especially, are pretty pretty fantastical in their depiction <laughs> of horrific things happening. Um, <laughs> The other question that we ask everybody, Noel, is uh, what's a TV show that you're loving now or a, a, a recent TV show that you've kind of found yourself getting into? Oh, man. I, there's been so much good TV lately. Um, I, like, it's been, it's hard to choose. Like, there's so much good stuff happening on TV. Uh, we just finished watching uh, Pin 15 on Hulu. That one was, I loved that one. That one was great. Uh just the sort of, you know, these adult women are playing themselves as middle middle schoolers. Um, and, like, it's just really, like, kind, beautiful, uh, like, very, very, like, very, uh, what's the word? Like, they're, they're mocking their childhood selves, but there's also, like, a lot of love towards their childhood selves <laughs> in this way that, like, you know, there are times when it just really hits you in the heart, and you're like, oh, my God. 
oh, those feelings that, like, you know, we all sort of experience in one way or another. Um, and, and just seeing these women be very kind of, like, mocking, but also very kind to their child. Yeah. Themselves is really, they're the, the, really they're both such incredible performers, too, the, the main yeah, leads and the um, uh, co-creators, Anna Conkle and Maya Erskine. Um, oh that's, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that you've uh, discovered that show. I think it's so phenomenal and, and definitely kind of captures that moment, too, that kind of 2000s right before everything happening in the later 2000s uh, uh, sort of started to happen. There are so many moments in the show that I'd be like, wait, how did I forget about that? How did you remember that? I thought we had all (laughs) collectively wiped this from our memories because it was just too much. And then like, you just, they just completely captured the feeling of that very specific time and place. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I loved it. Um, Noel, uh, season two of She-Ra uh, comes out this Friday. Um, again, in my limited understanding of animation, uh, I, I feel like you must be working on like season four or something right now. Um, but uh, uh, what can be, what, what can people um, kind of expect from the future of She-Ra in season two and beyond? I am so excited. I'm at the place right now where we're like we're we're locking some. A very exciting episodes right now and I'm at the point where I just can't wait for everybody to kind of like catch up with me because I just really want to like talk about it with people <laughs> so I'm like hey come on everybody get those seasons out watch those episodes like catch up um, I am very excited there's a lot more uh, kind of mythology and exciting revelations and the character dynamics continue to evolve in all directions um, and I am just so psyched for people to see more of it um, because I, yeah, I just, I just need people to, I just need people, people to get where I am right now. <laughs> uh, well, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely want to, want to talk to you about that when we were there and you were then a whole other year ahead of, uh, of, of, of us <laughs> in episodes. Uh, uh, Noel Stevenson, uh, thank you so much for, uh, um, talking to us today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Noel Stevenson. Everyone check out She-Ra and the Princesses of Power when it debuts this Friday with its second season. That wraps it up for this week's episode of Best of Shows. Uh, Thanks so much to my colleague Kristen Baldwin. Uh, Everybody, we'd love to hear from you. You can tweet at us. She's at Kristen G. Baldwin. I'm at Darren Franich. And while you're tweeting at us, why don't you go ahead and give us a rating and give us a review. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Radio.com. If you're at Radio.com, you can check out EW's Game of Thrones Weekly, which is going to be there and wherever else you find podcasts. I'm over there talking to my pal James Hibbard about all things Thrones related. I should have a catchphrase, but I don't. So goodbye. Goodbye.